Those of us who grew up in the 80s with that margarine craze, we're thinking like soybean oil, corn seed oil, sunflower oil. That's what margarine is made from. Not in the 1920s, it wasn't. So it wasn't a vegan alternative at that point. No, it was not. Welcome to Farm to Tabor, today on the high seas. I read a book about the history of whaling, and now you guys have to hear about it too. Everyone say hi to Maria, friend of the pod. She's here today to be put through the same experience that you guys are about to experience. Thanks for having me, Sarah. I'm super excited to be here. Oh my gosh, it's good to be here. I was like, I could monologue about this, but that's a little sad and boring. Well, you know, I'm I'm a friend of the pod, like you said, a longtime listener, first time podcaster. So I'm super excited to learn about the history of whaling and... Yeah. Probably not going to uh, look at Moby Dick the same way. Oh, yeah. You know, it's just a book about guys being pals. Just a guy and his whale. Yeah. And his harpoon. Yeah. Somebody's got to hold that dang harpoon. Um, You know, I don't say the whale's pretty lucky he didn't have a rocket launcher or a rocket. No rocket launchers. This is artisanal. Artisanal gay whaling. Yes. (laughs) Gay whaling. (laughs) That's got to be absurd somewhere. Like, without a doubt. Well, it is now. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> today we're talking about whaling and what it has to do with the growth of agribusiness as we know it today. We would not have the food industrial complex we know today without whaling. So we're going to talk about how that happened. I think that's a part of the food system we don't really talk about. If we're in the mindset of food comes from farms, there's a lot of things you can miss. Quick caveat, we're talking about industrial whaling, which when we're talking about food systems, I don't actually like the word industrial because... It's a little bit of a buzzword that doesn't mean anything, and it kind of gets the idea that artisanal, and if it's done by hand, it must be good. And I'm like, a lot of slavery farming was all done by hand, and it was not good, so I don't love that. But in this case, when we're talking about whaling, we're talking industrial whaling, when we were doing it at large scale for industrial feedstocks of oil and other items, subsistence whaling, if you're out there hunting whales to eat them, people got to do that sometimes, because like, especially in the Arctic, there's nothing else to eat other than seals and whales. And hunting is how you live. If folks up there can't do their normal subsistence hunting, they're stuck having to import food at great cost across great distances, how are you going to pay for that? Usually it's through oil and other mineral extraction, which is terrible for the environment. So if we're talking about sustainable living, it can get a lot worse than subsistence whaling. So that is not what we're talking about today. Subsistence whalers, we support you. This is a pro-subsistence whaling podcast. (laughs) We're talking about the other guys. So takeaways we want to go into today with whaling. Number one, the food system is way bigger than just agriculture. Food comes from farms is a lovely catchphrase, but it can be very misleading. Number two, the whole we stopped whaling because petroleum replaced whale oil, also not true. We're going to get into that. That is a myth. Number three, when our society supports itself by doing heinous things, sometimes we can just stop doing that. Really, we have a history. When when something's not working anymore, we can just stop, and I think that's great. We're going to cover some things in this episode today, they're a little rough to hear about. And I just want you to remember, we don't do that anymore. When people talk about that whole history of whaling and we stopped whaling because petroleum replaced them, they usually show you this graph and they're like, look, it died off. But the graph always cuts off around 1900. <laughs> that's not like, suspicious. That's not suspicious at all. Because if it keeps going back here, you have another big peak. World War II is like right here. The peak of whaling was happening in the 50s and 60s. What? Yeah. When you think post-World War II, you don't think, oh yeah, we weren't using petroleum yet. (laughs) That was like the heyday of let's really dig a lot of oil wells. Yeah. It was also the heyday of whaling. 
I mean, when I think the 50s, I'm not thinking Moby Dick, which is the only thing I associate with whaling. So, right? yeah. So when we talk about like, oh, the whaling industry rose and fell with the advent of petroleum, mm-hmm. I think what people are thinking of is the Nantucket whaling industry based off the U.S. East Coast, because that's when that whaling field collapsed. Around the world, it was still going strong. So there are different whaling fields. There are different whaling fields. So Nantucket used to be a huge whaling center. They sent fleets out all over the world, but at a certain point, it was no longer profitable to send whaling ships out of that particular port. So that's when that U.S. whaling industry collapsed. It was roughly around the time petroleum started becoming more of a thing in the U.S. But globally, whaling actually got a lot bigger. It had sort of a peak in the, the late 1800s, early 1900s, dropped, and then came surging back after World War II. So that is the actual shape of things. Actually, the peak of whaling was well after petroleum was a major commodity. That's when the peak of whaling occurred. So this is a thing we don't talk about very much. There's kind of like a techno-optimistic myth about how like, oh, petroleum replaced whales. We advanced through technology. That is not what happened. We came into petroleum and whaling got so much worse. So we're going to talk about the real story today of what happened, what we were whaling for, what was going on with that history, and what it has to do with the food system. If that sounds ominous to you, you are correct. When we kind of go through that that story mm-hmm. of how petroleum replaced whale oil, the mindset is, well, that's because we're using whale oil for light. That's kind of true. That's one of the things we're using whale oil for. Whale oil burns without a lot of smoke, right? That's what made it really interesting to people. But it's also really stinky. Ma'am, do you want to burn whale oil in your house? <laughs> Not particularly. It's all the lanterns that they used to use. You burned whale oil. Yeah. Whale oil, yeah, it was one of the things you could use. Tallow was another one. That was also kind of stinky. Uh, smoky. Tallow candles were really, like, cheap but smoky. Huh. Beeswax was the primo. Oh, well, beeswax was a primo. Spermaceti also, like, from that inside the head of sperm whales. Because that's more like a solid wax than an oil. So you can make that into candles. So yeah. primarily whale oil. Yeah. Whale oil was getting used for lighting. But also as a lubricant. Yeah, just like... What type of lubricant? Industrial lubricant, Maria. Well. (laughs) Listen, it's not for me to say. We've all read Moby Dick, right? Okay, so like... (laughs) But according to records, it was like industrial. Like machining, you know, we're having an industrial revolution. We got to grease those gears somehow. Let's go get some whales. That was the mindset. There are a few other things they're doing with it, too. I ran across in this book about the history of the peach industry in the South. At one point, they talk about, you know, we had some problems with this insect, so we sprayed some horticultural oil on them. So nowadays, we still use that. If you have aphids or something, you can spray oil on the tree, and it's non-toxic, but it kind of, like, suffocates the bugs. Kind of like if a kid gets lice, you can kind of, like, give them oil or, like, mayo head wrap, you know, and it'll suffocate the lice. It, can, it works on trees, too. I'm just confused why their first thought was whale oil for that. Well, that's just the oil they had around, you know, because they were just, like hunting so many whales they're like i need oil what's the cheapest oil the stinky one that nobody wants to use for lighting yeah fair enough yeah because like there wasn't really a vegetable oil industry yet like there kind of was but not like there is now mm-hmm. so now we... no avocado oil yeah not not so much in most of like you know the u.s south so nowadays i think like most conventional orchards will use like a really light mineral oil kind of like a baby oil type thing an organic orchard would use a vegetable oil to do the same thing but back then it's like listen the oil that we have sitting around in barrels is whales. So that's what they used. You think about walking through an orchard and it's, you know, this beautiful, idyllic day, but mm-hmm. I imagine rotting whale like oil. Rotting whales. Yeah. Would yeah. ruin that day. You no know? one wants to have a picnic in that orchard. 
I feel like the bugs might stay gone, you know? <laughs> I imagine it draws new bugs, yeah. truthfully. But, like, ones that don't want to eat your peaches, so that's better, right? They're just... I guess. They like corpses, and that's why they're there. Mm. <laughs> so kind of in that first era of whaling, those are things they used it for. You could also use it to make a paint, like an oil-based paint. You know, just anything you'd use an oil for. Typically, we get petroleum now, but at the time, they did use whale oil. So that was the first era of whaling. However, the second era of whaling, the main use for whale oil was soap and margarine. So this oil that stank mm -hmm. was used for soap. Mm -hmm. Well, because you, once you put it through soap processing, like it doesn't smell like whale oil anymore. Like oh. you chemically alter it so it doesn't have that property. Did not know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So soap was the main destination. And then depending on the year and the decade and like what war was on at the time, margarine. Because turning into margarine also makes it not stink anymore. That's kind of interesting to me because uh, there's like a whole history with kind of a war between butter and margarine. And like, you know, like now we have like all these like almond milk and all these nut milks kind of coming out. Yeah. And dairy farmers are really mad about it because they're like, that's not real milk. Yeah. So that was happening with margarine all the way back to this is just how dairy farmers are. They're like, no, you can't eat anything else but my thing. You don't understand. They seem very territorial. Yeah, super territorial. So there were like all kinds of economic battles between like the fisheries industry, wartime industries, dairy farmers over like, what are we using whales for? Mm -hmm. You know, how does the price compare to dairy products? It was this whole economic thing. So over the course of the second peak of whaling, which is really the big one, those are the main two destinations. It was an industrial feedstock for making soaps and also an industrial feedstock for making margarines. We're going to explore that a little bit. So there's a super handy chemical process that came up with in 1911 called hydrogenation, which is where you take a liquid oil or fat, like whale oil, and put a bunch of hydrogen in it. <laughs> That's why it's called hydrogenation. Hydrogenation. <laughs> and it changes how the fat behaves. We can get into the chemistry of this, but I don't think we really have to. If people care about what hyd how hydrogenation works, they already know. If you don't care, you don't really need to know. So... You chemically change this liquid oil so that it becomes like a stiff, spreadable fat like butter and lard, like a nice, normal shortening kind of thing. So this is why they invented hydrogenation. So they could turn whale oil into things. This is why we have that chemical technology. Wow. I know, right? I feel like for how much we talk about how this process has impacted the food system and like, why do we have this food system that's dependent on these big, crazy chemical processes? There's actually an answer to that question. <laughs> But, like, we don't really talk about it. I don't know. It just never really translated until let's actually look into the history of why we do this. In 1911, some guys invented hydrogenation. And I think for a while, the only companies that had patents on the process were actually whaling companies. So they did this in order to turn their stinky whale oil product, of which they had tons and tons and tons because they were massacring the ocean's whale populations. But again, it was a stinky oil. People didn't really want to burn it inside their homes. So they had to find some other way to turn it into a useful product. Could they just stop whaling? No, they already had these ships that were so expensive they had to go keep killing whales. And now that we've killed all these whales, we're going to do with all their, all their oil, right? So it was a little bit of a tail wags the dog kind of thing. That's why we have hydrogenation. Once we started doing it with whale oil, we found a lot of other uses for it. We started applying it to other plant oils or just other oils in general. And that's how we built the hydrogenation side of agribusiness that we have today. This is where it comes from. So initially we had these whaling companies using it just to kind of like process this raw bulk whale oil commodity that they had into something marketable. Something they could sell to soap companies like Unilever. Unilever? 
I think Unilever actually used to own a whaling fleet. I'm kind of surprised that the the whaling companies were the ones selling. Or, correct me if I'm wrong. Were they the ones selling the margarine? No, they were selling just I think hydrogenated whale oil to people who made margarine. Okay, gotcha. So uh, Unilever is made from a marriage of two companies. There's the Lever Brothers, and then there is like Dutch Uni or something. So there's a British company, the the Lever part, and the Dutch part, which is Uni, and they got together. So it's like this Anglo-Dutch company that really started out as like. We make stuff out of fats. We make soap. We make margarine. We make a lot of these other, like, fat-based products. That's really how they got their start, and that's how they branched out into foods. They started in kind of, like, industrial feedstocks and moved out into foods. Now it's a big food company with a lot of different brands and kind of companies under its umbrella. But this is the origin story for Unilever. Aren't they, like, a mega corporation? They have so many... Yeah. It's not conglomerate. Subsidiaries. Yeah. That's the word I'm I think for. conglomerate may be appropriate here. Yeah. I think they are. Conglomerate. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to be Unilever and you can't be a conglomerate, like, is it is it worth it? You know? Probably not. Although I will say they have lost a little of their previous luster because they used to have a whaling fleet. True. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, Moby Dick just set in, like, the Unilever fleet? I think it's a different book at that point. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine if Kraft, which is the only other conglomerate I can think of at this moment, had whaling ships. Yeah. I mean, what would that be like? Your yeah. mac and cheese would certainly be different. Yeah, just like just probably like, stink. Yeah, like it definitely st- had oil in it. Yeah, if that's like a, okay. <laughs> just like like a standard like mega food brands company that also has a whaling fleet. Like Yum Brands. Wait, actually, Chalupa. You know, like the word Chalupa, like the uh-huh. like the the big taco shell ish type things comes from the word for a Basque whaling boat. Really? Yes. Wow. We've come full circle. I forgot to put that in my notes, but it, it was in there. According to the source I found, the word chalupa entered Spanish from Basque, the word chalupa for this type of boat that they would chase whales around in, during, quote, what was it, in Labrador in the 16th century, the height of the Basque whaling period. <laughs> so, like, we're kind of going really deep into history and, like, how our culture was formed. Whaling has been a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so deep that we have Taco Bell entrees named after whaling boats from the height of <laughs> Labrador's 15th, 16th century Basque whaling phase. So... That's fun. Well, so now I'm going to be thinking about whaling when I'm drunk at 2 a.m. getting Taco Bell. So thank you for that. You're welcome. I mean, if if we can't do that, what can we do for the people? <laughs> so so to kind of bring it back to, to, the, to the point of what we're actually trying to talk about today, which is whaling was the moment of the birth of the agribusiness that we, we currently know today. Whaling is the main reason we invented hydrogenation. And once we figured out how to do it there, we started applying it to a lot of other oil feedstocks. Mm-hmm. Margarine became really popular with poor and working class people as a substitute for butter and lard. Two reasons for that. Butter was expensive. And lard, thanks to Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, got a reputation for being kind of sketchy. So Upton Sinclair writes The Jungle, right? And he's like, I aim for the people's hearts, but I hit them in the stomach instead. So one of the things he talks about is horrible workplace accidents where people would fall into rendering vats. And he's thinking, this is a horrible, gruesome injury. This is what's salient about this story. And what people got out of it was, oh my god, my lard has people in it. Let's just stop buying lard. And he's like, no, pass worker safety laws. And people are like, margarine! (laughs) So, as someone who also writes about the food system, this gives me night terrors. (laughs) He's just like, I thought I very clearly made my point, but people got something totally different out of it. This is why we podcast, I guess. Then you can't have these misunderstandings. Didn't he also write about rats getting into meat grinding machines? Yeah. Okay. So this be... I'm thinking of the same book. Yeah. 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 You, you get the vibe. So the jungle happened and mm-hmm. 
Lard's reputation on the market took a little bit of a nosedive. So people really started opting for margarine. Mm -hmm. It had this reputation of being more pure. It's made from plants and oils. Um, (laughs) That's really how it was marketed. Crisco was hydrogenated cottonseed oil. So it was just cottonseed. And that was kind of how they marketed it was. It's pure. It doesn't come from one of those sketchy meat plants where people might fall into the vats. It's more affordable than butter. This butter was really kind of a premium product at this time. And only really grown in the Midwest and kind of like, you know, the northern half, northeastern quadrant of the country. So if you're in the south, like butter is not your cooking fat because it's not solid at that temperature anyway that we have. In the south, lard was it. And then if lard is out, Crisco, you know, margarine. Did the lack of refrigeration play any part in that as well, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like it's... So in India, they make butter into ghee. They just remove the solids and they use butter as kind of like a, a liquid butter or mm-hmm. kind of like an oil. Um, Americans didn't do that. <laughs> it just did not occur to them, I think, that you could do that. They're like, no, I need a solid fat. So we are going after, again, Crisco, whales, margarine. <laughs> so that, that's the direction our food system took, right? Because mm-hmm. you have a bunch of people from a waspy background getting into a place that's hot for the first time and they don't know what to do. So instead of getting a fat that works with that, they're like, let's just make a new fat. It'll be fine. (laughs) This is also part of like the American food story. It's just people coming from different environments into a place they didn't really understand. And they're like, how do we improvise this into working? And that's, that's part of why the U.S. food situation is just kind of chaotic and all over the place and inventive. This means that whale oil and cottonseed oil kind of started merging into like the same pools of how it was getting used. It was getting put into margarine and uh, Crisco and all these edible fats, right? So at this point, you know, kind of early 20th century, hydrogenation started in 1911. So starting around then, we have this large, very poor working class that's dependent on margarine because lard is yikes and butter is too expensive. The margarine is coming from two places. One of them is whales. And here's what starts to really connect with agribusiness. The other main source of oils for margarine was cottonseed oil, which is not really a thing you can buy by itself as an edible product. So it needs a lot of processing. Yeah. So why does cotton need so much processing? It's poison. (laughs) (laughs) So. Oh, okay then. Right. Okay. So this is a fun thing that I learned. So as someone who's a crop scientist, you know, like lots of plants have defense mechanisms against getting eaten. Oh, like peppers are hot too. Yeah. Yeah. To keep things from eating them. Yeah. Peppers are spicy. Like coffee berries have caffeine in them to Mm -hmm. discourage bugs. Cotton is that bitch of a plant. It said, if you eat me, your line ends with me. So (laughs) no progeny. So a lot of plants will have things that interfere with insects' reproductive systems. And cotton is just like incredibly efficient at it to the point where it also can affect people. There were a couple times in world history where there was a food shortage. And so people started resorting to cotton. I think the most recent one I could find documented was in like China in the 20s or 30s or something. People start cooking with cottonseed oil because that's what they have, even though they know if you eat too much, it'll make you like feel gross, have a stomach ache. So this whole swath of China just stops having children. So does it make you infertile? Is it causing miscarriage? Do All we know? of the above. Oh. Yeah. Cotton was just like, again, you fuck with me, your line ends with me. All of your gonads, <laughs> gone, right? Okay, so <laughs> cotton, the first thing that it does is it'll interfere with cells that are dividing rapidly. So for that reason, it's also been checked out as a possible, like, can this do something for tumors? Because those are cells that are dividing rapidly. So it's kind of been under some exploration for that. The compound is called gossipol. 
G-O-S-S-Y-P-O-L, gossipol. It's in there. It's kind of like an oily yellowish substance. It's in all parts of the cotton plant, including the seeds, you know, roots, leaves, just all over there. So if a bug eats it, it'll interfere with rapid cell division, which means any embryos that you may have, canceled. Any sperm you are currently cooking, canceled. Also interferes with flagellar movement, so any sperm that you've already made, canceled. This is kind of um, interesting information at this point in, in time, politically. <laughs> Fun fact, although, if you go back in the WPA narratives, so this is folks in the Great Depression, you know, like in the FDR New Deal era, mm -hmm. he said, let's create some jobs by sending some journalists and writers out to interview people who grew up in slavery mm -hmm. and just document what that was all about before these people die off, right? Just of old age. So a few of them did mention, like, oh, yeah, just chewing on the cotton root. That's how you get it done. So it was known. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like, folks who grew up in West Africa where growing cotton was already a thing that people did commercially. And that's how white people learned how to grow cotton. They didn't grow it back in England. That's how that expertise entered the United States ecosystem, right? So in addition to growing cotton, they also knew how to use cotton. To be clear, it works because it's poison, you know. <laughs> Which, that's true for a lot of medicinal plants, is it not? That, yeah. That well, in large quantities, they will. Yeah kill you yeah and like if you have like livestock you can feed them a certain amount of cottonseed meal you know like what's left over after you press all the oil out for industrial purposes there's meal left over you can feed livestock a certain amount of that but above a certain amount they stop reproducing and they stop gaining weight because it's not good for you mm -hmm. um yeah so cotton is like that so these are the two oils that are entering <laughs> the margarine <laughs> supply mm -hmm. these are things that need a little bit of work yeah before they're edible right so that's kind of where that margarine process came in that's what made margarine so cheap. It was made from things that were otherwise completely inedible. I don't know about completely. You can eat whale oil. You can eat cotton. Just not for long. Yeah, like your line ends with you. Yeah, so yeah, this is why margarine was so cheap. Mm -hmm. Those of us who grew up in the 80s, you know, with like that margarine craze, we're thinking like soybean oil, cornseed oil, sunflower oil. That's what margarine is made from. Not in the 1920s, it wasn't. <laughs> so it wasn't a vegan alternative at that point. No, it was not. So again, like when we think of margarine in history, like usually kind of comes down to like 70s, 80s onward, where we have this history of battles over is margarine better for you than like butter you know, and yeah, yeah. lard and butter and stuff. That's what we think of when we think uh, margarine history, but it has a deep, a deep and storied history that goes way further back than that. Yeah, I'm, I'm honestly pretty surprised to hear that margarine was around in the early 20th century. Oh, yeah. Just kind of thought it popped up and I don't know. The 80s, the 90s, as some health fad? Yeah, no, it, it was a long and stored thing by that point. It was a working class staple, you know, because it was cheap, which kind of gets me into this whole thing of, okay, so mass poverty was like huge in the early 20th century. Even before the depression, you know, like the 10s, 20s, like sharecropping was a thing. Tenements were a thing. Tons and tons of people in the US, Europe, you know, all over the world are living in really, really deep, rank, horrific poverty. Mm -hmm. And so... I think that's something you have to take into account when you look at the food system. Usually, you know, like you said, we have this impression that all these like quote unquote convenience foods popped out of nowhere in the 70s because <laughs> feminism, they actually started in the 10s and 20s and 30s as like depression and deep poverty food. Oh, really? Well, yeah, yeah this is before the New Deal and yeah. before like we had really any social safety net. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's like really when the food processing industry got started was making super processed shelf stable foods for very, very poor people. Mm -hmm. in the earliest part of the 20th century. So those were staple foods for working class people for close to a century before middle class people discovered them in the 70s. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we're like, oh my God, this is disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
that's like their real story of food processing, right? Like, you know, like this is this is a thing that like the Michael Pollans of the world aren't talking about. <laughs> I don't know. Like, there's there's this whole discourse about like the food system and agribusiness and how it came about. That is very, this all started after World War II. This all started in the 70s because of feminism. Mm-hmm. And it's so fucking ignorant. Mm-hmm. If you would crack a book, we'd all know better, right? <laughs> this is why we do this. This is why we tell these stories, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, has a lot more to do with Moby Dick than it does, like, 1970s feminism. So that's just wild <laughs> to me. Also, so one of the reasons that people on margin, right, butter's expensive, right? So let's talk about butter being expensive. What's that all about? So butter kind of tended to come from at this point, you know, like 19, 19-aughts, 10s, 20s, it tended to come from smaller family farms. A big farm was one with five cows, like a big dairy farm at that point. Oh, so the farming hadn't been industrialized mm-hmm. yeah. to the, the point it has today. Yeah. So that helped me helped make butter expensive. Um, Makes but, sense. Yeah. So part of the reason for that was um, from 1900 through 1920 was a period they called the golden age of Midwestern agriculture. Mm-hmm. So you've ever heard... Family farming used to be a good way to make a living. Only true 1900 through 1920. Before that, it was like, you're out on the plains, good luck. You might starve before you manage to grow a crop. It was very, like, makeshift. You know, Mm -hmm. it was a very hazardous way to make a living. And after that is when the current, quote-unquote, agribusiness regime started, right? So the only times that family farming was a good, viable way to make a living, it was 20 years. 1900 through 1920. That's it. Yeah. That's it. And I've been not even over the entire United States. It was strictly in that northeastern quadrant, you know, Midwest, Mid-Atlantic, New England. In the South, Jim Crow. Not a lot of people are making a great living. Yeah. Further West, you know, California, the Arid Plains, they're kind of all doing their own thing. So this idea that family farming used to be a good living is like a 20-year thing that happened in a quarter of the country. Mm-hmm. And yet we have this mythos that it just always used to be that way everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's wild. The myth-making machine, it's incredible. Yeah, this romanticized version of, of just having, you know, mom and pop and the pitchfork. The mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, what is that famous American painting? Gothic, yeah. yeah. You know the one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a very limited time period that happens to coincide with when Whaley became big business again. <laughs> because for all of its perks and for how much farmers were making, because grain prices were so high, well, like dairy cattle eat grain, so that mm-hmm. makes butter expensive. Mm-hmm. So... The fact that farmers were making a lot of money during this 20-year period directly correlates to why poor people couldn't afford butter. Gotcha. Drove margarine. Yeah. Drove hydrogenation. Drove whaling. Okay. Mm-hmm. Drove the second wave of whaling, which is what really, really fucked the whales over. Poor whales. I know. They, they had nothing to do with this stuff. So American Gothic over here, whale massacres over here, same story. America. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny. Uh, it's funny, but it's so sad. Okay. It's, yeah. It's tragic, really. <laughs> yeah. This is why we need to talk about these things, right? Because we need to understand the mistakes we've already made so we can make new, exciting, more fashionable mistakes. Don't repeat the old ones. Exactly. There's so many new ones we can yeah. be making. Let's be... Let's explore. Let's mm-hmm. try some new shit. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, the period in, like, the, ni- you know, 19 aughts through World War II, kind of shitty. There's a big depression. There's two world wars. You know, and so a lot of countries were really stressed out about feeding everybody. Whaling was seen as like a solution because no matter the size of the land in your country, you could always send out boats and kill some whales. So it was very fashionable in this time period if you had a coastline. Whale oil became a really important international strategic wartime commodity chain with World War II. Because, again, you have like huge swaths of the world's population 
eating margarine made out of whale oil, right? Mm -hmm. So this is where a lot of people's calories are coming from, is whaling, mm -hmm. right? What if you blockade their ports? Other people are going to starve and or riot yeah. or both. So what if you're the English and the Dutch and you own Unilever and you're fighting the Nazis? Gotcha. So they weaponized whaling against uh, Nazi Germany. Yeah. So Unilever just stopped selling whale oil to Germany. Oh, wow. Yeah. As like a wartime fuck you. That was a big deal for Germany. So <clears throat> corporations me. really don't support support things anymore. <laughs> they don't fight the good fight anymore. I was like, Unilever, you did it once. You can do it again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the Unilever whaling fleet was like, we're not serving you Nazis. <laughs> Canceled. <laughs> so like, Hitler's like, we need a plan. Uh -huh. So he came up, well, I don't know if he personally, this sounds like too supply chain wonky thing for the Fuhrer or whatever, but the, the German, whatever, national apparatus came up with a thing called the German Fat Plan. Love the name. Yes, which is, okay, we're now embargoed from being able to import whale oil. We don't have our own whaling fleet and we can't mm -hmm. really like, mm, it's hard to get out mm -hmm. into whaling waters from where we are. We're kind of like, kind of stuck in the Baltic and kind of like deep in Europe. It's hard to get out without getting our ships shot. What are we going to do? So they got really into, we're going to promote dairy farming. That's how we're going to get all of our fat. So this really fed into the whole, like, German Nazi, like, blood and soil ethos. We're going to, like, get back to the land. We're going to save the family farm. Like, the small family farm shit played right into that. So it was a great way to bulk up our ideology, mm -hmm. portray ourselves as friends of the land. We're stewards of the land. Save face because you're not having people starving because of your shitty policies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, plus to run a farm, yeah. wouldn't you need... Multiple kids, and, and that was definitely something oh, that yeah. they wanted was to... Marrying yeah. babies. Exactly. Raising butter, you know? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. This was their plan to fight back against Unilever. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, dairy industry. Always kind of been like that. Anyway. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> now I have a bunch of dairy farmers who are like, the reason nobody drinks milk anymore is because, like, only white people can handle milk. And I'm like, the Nigerian dwarf goat would like to have a word with you about that. Only white people drink milk. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's one take. The reason nobody's drinking bulk milk anymore is you don't actually need to do that. And cheese is so much better. And yeah, there's a huge amount of Why like... drink it when you can eat it. Yeah. There's a huge amount of unmet demand for like good cheese in the U.S. that's met by imports right now because oh, we have yeah. fuck tons of dairy farmers who are just like, I want to make milk. That's it. And nobody wants to turn it into cheese. Yeah. There's a whole conversation we can have about investment and supply chains there. But let it be said that dairy farmers do not see that as their job. They're like, my job, make milk. What happens after someone else's problem? And then they call it agribusiness when someone else does it and they bitch about it. So <laughs> I think I cut down a lot of the milk I drank, which is not like I was drinking gallons of milk, mm -hmm. was when I found out that there's a certain amount of blood and pus that's allowed in yeah. by the FDA. Uh -huh. That really just kind of yeah. fucked up my idea of milk. Yeah. Like, I love cheese and ice cream so much. And dairy farming is like, ugh, you know, yeah. it's like very conflicted. I'm sure it's ruined that. Yeah. There's... In part. Or you just don't think about it. Yeah. I Force this... yourself not to. I had this, like, it ran the soils lab where I used to work at, at BYU, you know. He was kind of like a cowboy, good old boy dude, and he was like, milk always comes in two flavors, chocolate or strawberry. And we're like, Bruce, what do you mean by that? And he's like, there's either blood or shit in it. <laughs> it's a good joke. It's a great joke, even. But I need you to not. Mm -hmm. Oh, but God, that's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the thing about a cow's tits is they're halfway between the floor and its ass, and gravity exists, so... I love ice cream, though. I do, too. Life is complicated. 
Maybe I'm just going to switch to sorbet. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need to worry about that. But just in, in terms of understanding <laughs> how the dairy industry fits into the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what we're here about, you know. For sure. What we all do with this information personally, it's our business. It's fine. Exactly. We're just bringing information. <laughs> so we know that whaling impacted the way dairy farms were kind of viewed. Mm-hmm. Like, Yeah, the role of dairy farms and the, the dairy industry in... Uh-huh. So I guess what did they do to protect the farmers from the industry? Oh, you know, subsidies. Subsidies. Yeah. Pay people not to grow things. Normal farmer stuff. Yeah. So traditionally, like before the modern era, dairying was we sell butter and we sell cheese Mm -hmm. and maybe buttermilk. You didn't really just sell like milk in a bottle. That wasn't really a thing that you bought or sold because milk is just not really meant to sit around. It's supposed to go directly from like the boob into another animal, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's very perishable. It's just not meant to travel. Mm -hmm. Make it out in the world, right? So the fluid milk industry was a thing that kind of had to be created by governments in order to exist. Really? Yeah. So there were like marketing campaigns, you know, like uh, milk, it does a body good, I think is one that folks nowadays have heard. But mm-hmm. this, there's a long history of that, encouraging people to drink milk, particularly in the U.S. to fight vitamin deficiencies that were actually really common in a lot of U.S. history, 1900 mm-hmm. through 1940. We had this pellagra epidemic that like killed 100,000 people at least. Oh, wow. Yeah. Just straight up malnutrition. So this is like the 1950s version of like, got milk? Mm-hmm. Well, like the 1920 version. Yeah. Oh, so milk was kind of touted as this like magical like vitamin containing substance that would keep you from getting vitamin deficiencies. And like the folks who were getting pellagra, it's not because they weren't eating dairy; it's because they're eating nothing, but like corn, salt, pork, and molasses. So anything else in their diet would have helped them. Could have been dairy, nuts, fish, meat of any kind that wasn't salt, pork, like anything. Yeah. So the thing the U.S. government picked, and I think a lot of other governments for similar reasons, was milk. Mm-hmm. They're like, uh, uh, milk. Milk will solve this problem. <laughs> Because at the same time, they also had this need to kind of like pay off dairy farmers mm-hmm. as prices were kind of going all over the place. So they saw it as a great way to like kind of meet two goals at once. Mm-hmm. And that is how milk got its reputation as like this magical, like health promoting substance that it had for a lot of the 20th century is straight up marketing. Wow. And a lot of that marketing was in response to how much whale oil people were eating. Because they couldn't afford butter. Because they couldn't afford butter. This is why a nutrition device makes no sense. Like it's so often actually about how do we sell more shit that farmers are making too much of we never tell the farmers stop that's yeah. unchristian we can't do that yeah yeah so we just like have to tell poor people like this is what you're supposed to do which i think might be why we view consumer choice as how we're supposed to make change we're used to getting lectured at like peasants and we're like yes daddy more please exactly mm-hmm. but that's not how change happens no mm-mm it's always rich people making decisions and then telling poor people what to do and they're like, consumer choice! Yeah, so starting in 1929, the number one destination for whale oil used to be soap, but in 1929 mm-hmm. it changes to margarine. So that was kind of like the tipping point. It had been making margarine before that, but that was really like the tipping point, right? So this had huge consequences for the whaling industry. All of a sudden there's this huge new place to dump whale oil. We got to go get more whales. So in 1930, the whale oil catch for the year was about 1 million barrels. Wow. Of melted down whale. The one million. 1931, the next year, three and a half million barrels. So it like triple and a half. Yeah. In one year. Wow. Yeah. So that's what margarine will do for you. So three and a half million? Mm-hmm. Is that what you said? Wow. That is a lot of whale oil. Mm-hmm. So to get the oil, you're just using like the blubber, the fat. Mm-hmm. What are they doing with the rest of the whale? What do you mean do with it? What? You just dump it overboard. You, you, you they didn't like shit. eat it or? Not really. No. Because whale meat is stinky. Make... 
if you're not used to yeah. eating it, it's going to taste differently than like beef. And so people are like, oh, we don't want that. So early whaling, it was just kind of like, okay, you kill it, strip all the fat off, sink it, right? As the whaling ships start getting bigger and bigger over the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, they start getting bigger ships that can haul the entire whale on board, disassemble it. They were coming up with like steam-powered bone saws that were like two people long. Oh my you know. god. Yeah, because then you can access the marrow inside and you can mm-hmm. melt the fat out of that. So we're like, we've got more fat in the whale. But they still weren't really using the meat for much because it's just so much bulk. Mm-hmm. And they were like, it's not worth as much. So they're like, not worth it. So they're just stripping all these carcasses for fat and then like dropping them overboard. Wow. Was a lot of what was going on. They did get a couple ships equipped with giant cookers to basically like cook the meat down into like, but you know, after you take apart the bones, they would pulverize the bones, cook mm-hmm. them down, and then you'd have like fertilizer meal left over from like bones and meat and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there just wasn't much of a market for the meat. People didn't want to buy it. There's one exception to that, which we're going to cover in a few minutes. Yay. Yay. Um, but yeah, like that's, that's why I say like industrial whaling versus subsistence whaling. If you're hunting whales and you're going to eat them, that's how it goes sometimes. Yeah, that's fine. You're providing for yourself or your family yeah. community. If you're dumping all the fucking meat overboard, maybe you're making a mistake. <laughs> Seems wasteful. Yeah. Yeah, that's like, that's a lot of protein. And like, yeah. can you imagine if you're an organism that lives on whale falls, you're probably like, blubber from the sky! And then you're like, it's naked. Yeah. Yeah. Boo. I'm just surprised that they didn't fish whales into extinction. Oh, they honestly. tried. Yeah, they tried. So that golden era of midwestern agriculture was 1900 through 1920 right mm-hmm. so by the late 1920s butter prices just went kerplop there's a lot of reasons for that there's just kind of overproduction right that's a whole nother podcast on why overproduction was happening in the late 1920s for our purposes today we'll just say it was happening butter prices plunge so all these countries start doing dairy protectionism to like save dairy farmers from whatever was happening the mess of their own making i'm sure yep Again, that's a whole other podcast, but yes. Um, <laughs> gosh, but yeah, like whaling was also happening at this point, coinciding with that. So countries are like, oh, we have to save our dairy farmers from all this whaling. So they're like trying to like, they're trying to protect the whaling industries at the same time, but also protect dairy people from the whaling industry. It was very like, because whaling fleets were seen as this national strategic asset because that's how you get fat to feed your poor people, which you mm-hmm. need for industry and like. You need cannon fodder. You got to do the jobs no one else wants to do. Yeah, you got to get whale oil for your cannon fodder. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. you got to have that. So exactly, let's put national governments in a terrible position. So yeah, in the midst of all that, by 1934, like whale oil prices were back up again, and there was now so much whale oil being caught that it was like the price setter for global fat prices. You know, it was no longer coconut. Well, I don't know if it's longer, but like, you know, there were coconut plantings around the Pacific. They were also like providing a lot of coconut oil. There was butter, lard. These were all like global supply streams of various kinds of fats. And by 1934, whale oil was the price setter. It was like the cheapest bulk fat because they were just liquidating so many whales that poor whales. I know. What a way to go. I just, God. Being just struck up on a ship and then like disassembled. Oh, God. Yeah. So now we're going to talk about like the post-World War II whaling renaissance. Okay. <laughs> Um, this was actually like the peak of global whaling. It was not the Moby Dick era. It was post-World War II. So the funny thing about the onset of petroleum-based economies, we finally had boats fast enough to go after whales we couldn't previously hunt before. Oh no. Blue whales! They're really fast. Like, they're long and skinny, and like their whole feeding strategy is to get underwater and like swim kind of fast through clouds of krill. So they're, mm-hmm. they're built for speed. That's why they're so long. <laughs> and, uh, like wind-powered whaling vessels hadn't really been able to 
catch them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That ended with petroleum engines. Also, like, rocket-powered harpoons. This is like a shoulder-mounted grenade launcher harpoon situation. Yeah. So now they can go after bigger, faster whales. Right whales, bowheads, a lot of those whales were already at levels that was very difficult to hunt them in an economical way. There just weren't that many. Mm -hmm. So they started going after new species they couldn't get before. We almost drove the blue whale to extinction to make margarine. Wow. Yeah. That's fucked up. So can I ask a question? Yes, please. So you said that we almost caused the blue whale to go extinct Mm -hmm. because it was over, I guess, overfished. What whale were they using before? Oh, you know, right whales, bowheads, humpbacks. So kind of any, like a variety. Yeah. Okay. Right whales got that name because they're like, oh, they're the right whale to hunt because they're fatty and like they they float when you kill them. Because you don't want to be like, yeah, we finally got it. And then it's like, bloop. How many times did that happen, I wonder? Apparently a lot. Enough for them to be like, no, that one. That's <laughs> Yeah. I guess they figured out pretty soon, like, oh, if we want it to we want it to float, we have to do some things, which we're going to get to in a second. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So, yeah. So, like, we've talked about kind of the pre-war slash interwar, you know, like 1900 through World War II mm-hmm. phase of the whaling era. Now let's talk about the pinnacle, the post-World War II boom. This is the advent of real techno-whaling, right? Um... Which is why we got so many of them so fast. And this is like really the peak of whaling. So we're not going to belabor this too much. But we already know why we're doing it. Mostly margarine. Mm-hmm. Some soap. Some dog food. Some fertilizer. But like not a lot of that. Mostly it was just like let's get the oil and dump the rest. So we're going to talk about some of the technologies and some of the things they did. First we're going to talk about the one place that did not dump the rest of the body. Japan. Really? Yeah. So whaling in Japan was for meat because like well post-world war ii whaling so they had a little bit of like a like a traditional whaling fishery post-world war ii though it was like oh our country's in smithereens we've been nuke bombed twice we need food what are we Mm -hmm. gonna do so the deal the u.s came up with was u.s companies are going to finance your whaling industry we keep the oil we'll let you keep the meat how generous i know yeah, so this is a colonial relationship kind of thing. This is just the things you do to help, like, rebuild a country after you bomb into smithereens. We're gonna... Checks out. Just yeah. shove our hand up your whaling industry like a ventriloquist. And then, when whaling's not cool anymore, we're gonna be like, Ew, you eat whales! <laughs> we never did. We just threw the corpses away. Mm-hmm. That's kind of funny to me. I'm like, not into whaling that much, but I'm like, well, if, at least you're gonna eat them, right? Yeah. There's a purpose to it. And this is still something they do to this day, right? Yeah. yeah, so Japan still has a whale industry because post-World War II, people got used to eating whale, so now mm-hmm. it's a normal thing to eat. You kind of have, like, a palate for it. Not like you're compelled to do it, but it's, like, a normal thing to eat. It's part of your cuisine now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, animal rights activists in the U.S. It, it really pisses them off. I yeah. Occasionally, like, PETA and others mm-hmm. will show up on yeah. my social media feeds. Yeah. I think the most important part of that kind of activism is just to know nothing about history and why people yeah, do things. For yeah. sure. Yeah. For sure. This pushed Japan towards hunting species of whale that, like, the U.S. and Western whaling industries had not been really interested in. Uh, mm-hmm. The minke whale was... Because the meat was better, perhaps? Well, like, the ratio of meat to fat was different. So, mm-hmm. like, Western whalers were really after, like, the chalkiest whales, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the thickest coats of blubber. And I guess minke whales aren't that. They're, like, they still have blubber, but they're, they're smaller. They're more meat, right? Mm-hmm. So that was a species that worked for Japan. That's still kind of one of their primary species that they hunt. But you get two to three tons of oil out of one and about five to eight tons of meat. Mm. So 
if you're going to finance the whale industry through like, give us a little bit of oil and you keep the meat, then Nikki makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why the Japanese whale industry has shaped up the way that it has. You cannot like it, but you should know why it is. Yeah. So that's a post-war development in whaling. There was a whole Soviet whaling industry that's just like, that's a whole other thing. It's hard to make sense of records from that time period sometimes. <laughs> and that's not just a Soviet thing. During the Cold War, they were starting to try and put in whaling quotas. Mm-hmm. And nobody gave a fuck about them. Everybody's like, okay, only 300 this year. Everybody gets 300 apiece, you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> so in this time period, it was kind of understood, oh, there's there's a limited amount of whales out there. We got to be smart about getting them. Mm-hmm. And then everybody's like just going total knives out and getting every whale they can find anyway. A really notable episode of whale poaching, Aristotle Onassis. As in Jackie Onassis' husband? Yeah! Mm-hmm. Same guy! Wow. Yes, he is one of the foremost whale pirates in Earth history. How many whales is he responsible for? Do we know? Well, if you don't keep records. Oh, fair enough. (laughs) Good point. (laughs) So like, okay, so Aristotle Onassis had a big shipping fleet. Mm -hmm. It's it's easy-ish to convert a cargo ship to a whaling ship and vice versa, right? Hmm. So there was this period in the early 50s where whale oil prices were just really high. And he like converted some ships to whaling fleets and just went fucking crazy. And again, records were not really kept because that's not the point of like whale piracy. Mm-hmm. There was some whaler who was talking about their experiences working in his fleet. And he was like, at the end of the day, there were still a few pieces of meat lying around on the deck. Remains of one of the 124 whales we had killed that day with that boat. One of them was an adult. Wow. Yeah. So that's Jackie's husband. Yeah. <laughs> one of her husbands. Yeah. Well, that's what they say, you know, wealth can't buy class. So Exactly. Yeah. So that's, that was the spirit of post-World War II whaling. It was just all out. There's only so many left. We got to get them first. Was really yeah, the vibe that was going on. Yeah. So they weren't even waiting until they were big enough to, honestly, I mean, seems if, like make it worthwhile. Yeah. If they're there, get them. Like, I'm already out here in my boat. Let's so do it. So there was no thought of conservation or, hey, if we want to be able to continue to get whale oil yeah we need whales well it was kind of like that in the streets you know like international diplomacy we need to conserve this this mm-hmm. commons in the streets and it was like get it before someone else gets it in the sheets was <laughs> was the pinnacle of the whaling industry yeah okay then yeah this is whale piracy if you're nasty i see yeah yeah so another thing you can do if you're nasty is um so in world war ii they invented sonar to find mm-hmm. submarines right they found that whales really don't like sonar. And so they just started putting it on whaling vessels and like setting off really loud bursts of sound because like toothed whales, like if you had like one sperm whale that was by itself, it would kind of like panic and come to the surface and it was easier to hunt or you could use it to track it as it dived and then came back up. If you had a whole pot of sperm whales, they would just scatter. So it didn't work so well. Mm-hmm. But baleen whales, which were really like the main whaling target, mm-hmm. would just panic and come to the surface where you could shoot them. Mm technology mm-hmm. so again this whole conversation that we tend to have about how like the technology made this horrible whaling industry obsolete oh no it didn't it made it so much more hardcore yeah you mentioned the rocket harpoons yeah yeah I've seen some parallels there with the invention of the cotton gin or yeah. the cotton press cotton yeah. gin yeah cotton yeah cotton gin Technology can free and liberate. As a person who's done manual labor in the fields, I'm all about automation. I feel like people are made for better things than, like, that. <laughs> you know, I don't mind some, like, repetitive manual work. It can be mm-hmm. soothing. 
But there comes a point where it's like, this is destroying my body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm all about automation. I think it's awesome. I love technology. It's it's my friend. Um, <laughs> but just because technology exists does not mean it's always going to get used in a way that liberates, helps, frees people from problems, mm-hmm. assists the environment. Sometimes it's just a way to do bad things faster. Absolutely. There's a Peter Drucker quote. There's no point in getting better at doing things that you shouldn't be doing in the first place. What a good quote. I know. Smart man. Yeah. He's one of like the original anti-fascists. I think he like left Germany because he was like, I'm working on management and how people work together. And he looked at the Nazis and he was like, well, not like that. And then he had to go. <laughs> That's how he became an American. And he had all kinds of quips about like, don't get better at stuff that we shouldn't be doing. He had a point. Oh, damn. That is a guy who left Germany in like 1930. Get out while the getting's good. Oh, God. So, yeah, he had some thoughts on industrialization that I think are valid. This is, like, my personal most egregious, wow, people are really doing this thing. So, if you have rocket-powered harpoons, and you're going down to, like, the Antarctic, where the whales haven't been totally hunted out yet, because that's, like, the last place we tried whaling, right? Uh Uh-huh. You can come across a whole pot of whales at once, and you can take them out very quickly. It takes way less time to shoot whales dead than it does to disassemble them. Which means you are a boat surrounded by a cloud of dead whales bobbing around. And they'll, they'll sink. So you gotta hang on to them. So they started pumping them full of air. So they'd stay floaty. Oh, so they could get to them. Yeah. Oh, wait. There's like two more steps of crazy. Okay. So it starts with killing way too many whales. Mm-hmm. We gotta pump them full of air mm-hmm. so we can find them. Yeah. They don't go bloop below the waves. The thing is, like... Any critter, once it's dead, it's going to start decomposing. It kind of starts in the stomach because that's where all your bacteria are and then it kind of moves out. With whales, that's especially rapid because they've got this coat of blur, right? Mm-hmm. So it keeps them warm on the inside. The cadaver just does not cool down. Mm-hmm. So it's a nice warm incubator in there and they like really start bloating up and that degrades the quality of the oil. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's like decomposing instead of like, even fresh whale oil is kind of stinky, but once it starts decomposing and you have all these free fatty acids, it's like, ugh. Yeah. It's really dark. You, There's a few industrial grades and you go all the way down to the bottom if you're harvesting decomposing whales. So they make them float. They pump air into them. Mm-hmm. But that would speed up the decomposition because now there's oxygen in there. Mm-hmm. So then they started pumping them full of antibiotics to slow down the decomposition. As opposed to just killing fewer whales in an instant. Well, yeah. Well, well, not the, an instant, but If quickly. they all run away, then you might never find them again. You gotta get them now. Wow. Yeah. So that's industrial whaling. Okay. That's awful. Yeah. That's a uh, that's the end of my technical notes about post-World War II whaling. So uh yeah, the Moby Dick era was not the pinnacle. It was this post-World War II like techno whaling shit that really did it. I mean, uh, it's really not what I think of when I think of the 20th century. Right? All this stuff is happening out of sight and there was no mm-hmm. like Melville mm-hmm. out there writing about it mm-hmm. to like really Make it a part of the popular consciousness. So yeah. It was not considered romantic in the same way for some reason. Can't imagine why. Yeah. I don't think we have a lot of sea shanties about blowing sonar at whales so they'd freak out <laughs> and get easier to find. None that I can think of. <laughs> sea shanty. Pass the antibiotics, Bill. <laughs> it seems like a waste of antibiotics because surely there was i mean i'm sure people that needed them a barrel yeah yeah i guess i don't know how available they were at yeah. that point though like, yeah. or what yeah. they would have been used for yeah so that was back in the 1950s when things were nice so i want to take it back to some take-home points here the food system 
is a much bigger thing than agriculture, right? We have fisheries, we have whaling. Those played a huge part in how they came out. And just because we, I think we don't do whaling anymore, we don't think of it as possibly having been a factor in why our food system came out the way it did, but we should. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing I get out of it. A second is the idea that petroleum just replaced whales and it was like natural technical progression that made this go away is just not true. The reason it kept going as long as it did was you have people like Aristotle Onassis and just whaling fleet owners. If we make it illegal, I'll be a rich man who's very angry with you. <laughs> and that's really kind of what kept it going for so long. I think it's really easy to kind of put it into these abstract and personal terms like capitalism and like shareholders. They were individuals making these choices. Mm-hmm. I think we should not lose sight of that. I think chalking it up to abstract stuff and forces makes it into like a perpetratorless crime. We're all acting in responses to outside forces, but we also have agency. And we can choose to reinvest our capital in something that's not a whaling ship. That's a choice we can make. And eventually we did. We stopped whaling because we figured out, this is gross, this is terrible, this is wrong. There's also not enough whales to really financially support it anymore. We were this close to driving a lot of whale species straight to extinction for fucking margarine. Something we can make out of soybeans. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's just a testament to the fact that, you know, we have a lot of human needs. Like, we need soap. We need fat to eat. These are all things that we actually do need. It is not wrong to need these things. I think that's something that kind of gets lost in the environmental movement sometimes. We're kind of taught to feel ashamed for, like, needing to wear clothes (laughs) and, like, eat food. We are animals. We have needs. We are part of this ecosystem. It's okay to use soap. Mm Mm-hmm. We can find better ways to get the soap, mm-hmm. is what this is about. And I think sometimes we talk about consumer choice. We say things like, oh, well, this margarine existed because people just wanted cheap food. Well, how poor were those people? Mm-hmm. Could they literally afford anything else? I think consumer choice is a really weird lens to try and use to change the food system. Because as we see here with whaling, we did finally put an end to whaling. And it wasn't by people boycotting margarine. We just fucking made whaling illegal. And that's how you change a food system. (laughs) (laughs) I got into this one book about whaling and I was just like, this feels like we should know about this more than we do. I think our lack of knowledge about the history is is kind of the reason. Like, I didn't even realize. uh, Most people, I would assume, don't realize that there was a, as you said, a whaling renaissance in the um, mid 20th century. I didn't either until I read this book just like by accident. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's the whole techno myth that we should probably put to rest. Mm-hmm. We have a lot more agency in our lives than we think we do. Technology does not whip us around like helpless little ragdolls. We make choices. We do things. Absolutely. And we do it at the political and financial level, not at the consumer level. Yeah. 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 Because people who are buying whale margarine don't have a lot of choices in life. Otherwise, you'd be eating butter. Well, I think it's another way to kind of shame poor people. Yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> For sure. Let's go after a resource that nobody owns and nobody can tell me no. <laughs> Out on the high seas where technically there are laws, but no one to enforce them. Mm-hmm. 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 If a law falls in the woods, but no one's there to arrest it, did it really happen? <laughs> I guess not. Yeah. So yeah, thanks for listening to Farm to Tabor today on the high seas. That's Farm to Tabor. If you'd like to help support the show, you can tell your friends that it's cool. Rate us on your relevant podcast apps and or find us on Patreon, where we have early access to new episodes and bonus content. A special shout out today to everyone who signed up for the Indiegogo to help support the extra workload of Relaunch. Thanks to Maria Jim Hanshaw, Emily Janzer, Megan Mann, K.H. Glick, Eric Spittle, Bo Robichaud, Jenny Wilson, James Killen, 
David Graff, Robert Kern, as well as Patreon supporters. Thank you all for making this podcast possible. Thanks for listening. We had a good time, and we hope you did too. 